Thank you for joining us for a new edition of the Pennsylvania Library Association's PA LaunchPod, the podcast that focuses on Pennsylvania libraries and the people who make them special. Every day in Pennsylvania, a librarian impacts the life of a child, family, student, job seeker, grandparent, or the guy next door. This is your opportunity to hear what is happening at a library somewhere in Pennsylvania, maybe even your hometown. This is Heidi Abbey Moyer, one of your hosts of PA LaunchPod. Today on PA LaunchPod, we are speaking with Bernadette Lear and Eric Novotny, the creators and editors of the new academic journal, Libraries, Culture, History, and Society, published by the Pennsylvania State University Press. The journal is the official peer-reviewed journal of the Library History Roundtable of the American Library Association. The editors are Bernadette Lear, an academic librarian at Penn State Harrisburg in Middletown, and the library faculty liaison to two academic schools, Behavioral Sciences and Education, as well as Science, Engineering, and Technology. Eric Novotny is also an academic librarian and faculty liaison to History, History and Philosophy of Science, and Middle East Studies at the Penn State University Libraries and University Park. Bernadette and Eric, welcome, and thank you for joining us today on our podcast. We're Thanks very, for having us. We're, yeah. we're very excited to learn more about the journal that you have created and launched this year. So starting off with Bernadette, uh, can you please tell us some basic information about the journal and how it came to be? When did you start working on it, and when was the first issue published? Sure, Heidi. Um, as you mentioned, it's a scholarly peer-reviewed journal um, that publishes original research focusing on the history of libraries and librarianship. The culture and society pieces in its title point to the fact that we're especially interested in libraries' relationships with their communities, um, with the people, the, the uh, politics, the economics, and other social factors in those local communities. We cover all types of libraries, not only public and academic, but school, private, special, and other libraries too. All, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. We've gotten submissions about Argentina and Spain and, you know, even the Arctic, you know. Um, so any place in the world, we welcome. We also welcome scholars from outside the library and information science discipline whether that's historians, economists, uh, literary scholars, you name it. Regarding how the journal got started, back in 2012, the journal that ALA, Library History Roundtable, used to partner with, it changed editors and it changed focus. So we really felt that library historians needed a home to publish their work. So after a couple of years of legwork in 2015, Eric and I were appointed as co-editors, and we published our first issue in the spring of 2017. Now, Eric actually recently wrote a little article about our history. Um, so, Eric, is there anything that I've said or anything you'd like to add? Um, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, moving on to the next question, Eric, why do you think this journal is important? And can you tell us more about the focus of the journal and why articles are chosen for publication? Of course, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about our new journal. Um, so Bernadette sort of alluded to this, but I'll just make it um, explicit. Our journal is the only journal that studies libraries uh, in a historical context, um, at least among journals based in North America. 
And it's a fundamental principle of ours that it's vital that we know our profession's history. And so libraries are as ubiquitous and commonplace, at least in the United States, as McDonald's. Um, but oftentimes they're not covered in historical treatments of a city or a region. Um, so we're looking, as Bernadette said, to situate libraries within their broader historical and social context. And we're looking for works that advance our current understanding of library history. And that could be by exploring an understudied community, building on an existing study to provide new insights, stimulating new questions. And so that includes all kinds of libraries across all time periods and, and places. Um, so it may be helpful for, for listeners to know that um, our first issue is available on uh, open access on JSTOR. So if you Google libraries, culture, history, and society, and add the word JSTOR, you can see our first issue, which will give you an idea of some of the types of works. And some of the accepted works for our first uh, couple of issues have looked at library services to youths in juvenile detention facilities, the American Library Association's response to segregated libraries in the South, a uh, private collection built by uh, a female collector in early modern England, and a small liberal arts college library. And so hopefully that gives listeners some idea of the types of the range of works that, that we've accepted. And these works have examined the influences of race, gender, politics, and economics on libraries and librarianship. And I'll just conclude by saying that we very much encourage and want to work with new authors and, and help to um, add new voices to the conversation. So if anyone listening to this has questions about the types of work we publish or whether their work is appropriate, they should absolutely be in touch with Bernadette and I, and we'll be happy to uh, consult and, and advise and hopefully uh, develop a, a strong work. May I add something, Eric? Yes, um, you may. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, looking at the LIS discipline more broadly, um, I, I personally think that there's an imbalance in terms of the methodologies we use to understand libraries. Um, there are tons and tons and tons and tons of articles that take social science methods, you know, the statistical um, sort of stuff, and that's very valuable. But I think that qualitative studies can help us understand more of the nuances, more of the reason of why we do what we do. So I, I, I like the fact that our journal addresses that. I also think that we provide every, every issue we've published, including our third issue, uh, which is going into press now, um, has a very strong emphasis on race, class, and gender. Um, which, although other journals do publish an article here and there on on those important topics, they're not they're not highlighted as much as they are in ours. So um, I think that our publication can do a lot for the profession in terms of underscoring different communities, um, both librarians and patrons who haven't had as much of a voice or had as much emphasis. So. That's what I'm particularly proud about and what we do. Okay, thank you both. So Bernadette and Eric, what made you interested in pursuing this publication, which is undoubtedly a lot of hard work, and how does it relate to your backgrounds and research interests as faculty at Penn State? So I'll, I'll kick things off and then sure. you go from there. But so I, I didn't start off doing library history as my research interest. Um, I, I came to that focused fairly late in my career. And as a practicing librarian, I turned to the, the previous, our predecessor journal, um, in a way, the 
a previous journal of library history called under which went under various names, but uh, libraries and culture was the name that I knew it as when I became a library historian. And that is really where I learned what good library history looked like, and also where I started finding out who were my colleagues in the community of library historians. And so when that journal transitioned into a journal of information uh, and culture as opposed to libraries and culture, um, there was a definite need for something to fill that gap um, to recreate a venue where current and future library historians could read the best of library history and where people writing library history could reach the right readers. And so to, that was one of the guiding motivations for me was to create a space where library historians could converse with each other. So I'll stop there and Oh, okay. Um, for me, uh, my research agenda has always focused on the history of libraries. Um, my bachelor's degree is in history. Um, and when I came to Penn State uh, 13 years ago, I had to publish or perish. And I felt that I do much better as a historian than anything else. Um, so I've always focused on the history of public libraries in Pennsylvania. I'm working on a book on that right now. In terms of why I uh, volunteered to work on the journal, um, I'm very committed to the Library History Roundtable. I, I've been chair of it twice. And this was something, having a journal was something that the many members of that roundtable really wanted. And unfortunately, as with many small entities, it's hard finding volunteers. So when the call went out uh, for members of the editorial board, I volunteered, you know, to be a co-editor. I didn't want to take the whole thing on by myself, but um, I was willing to do it with Eric or with another uh, helpful partner because I was just at a place in my career. I'm already tenured now, a full professor. So, you know, publishing my own research wasn't as important to me as uh, providing service to other colleagues who are trying to publish um, or who need mentorship and how to do this type of research. So for me, the big motivation has been the opportunity to help others. Great, thank you. Uh, and this question is for both of you as well. Can you tell me as co-editors uh, about your different editorial roles with the journal and what has it been like to do the work? It's been fun every day. Uh, no, it's, um, it has been a lot of work, and I, I think that's uh, understood, but um, as far as different roles, we, we, um, we did sort of work out sort of different spheres, although they, we overlap, but in general, I work with the, and correspond with the um, Library History Roundtable, which is the sponsoring organization for the journal, as well as the Penn State Press, the, the publisher of the journal, and so those two entities just sort of make, when there's a, a need to communicate with them um, to get their feedback, provide updates, those are, we consider those sort of the internal audiences and, and I sort of take the lead on those. And Bernadette? Sure, I have kind of taken the lead on external relations. So um, when an author sends us an email asking us about the scope of, of the journal or whether their research would fit in with what we publish, I would typically respond to that. I also make sure the CFP and table of contents of issues, I distribute those um, to various organizations. So I'm kind of more the lead on the publicity side, but 
as with any good team, teammates know when to step in when somebody else is kind of, you know, flailing. <laughs> um, and at different times of the year, Eric has jumped in to help, you know, with, with my efforts and I with his. Importantly, both of us read every submission and we converse about that before we decide to send them on to reviewers. And then when the reviewers give us feedback, Eric and I um, confer again and come to a decision together. And I think that that's, uh, even though it's more work for the both of us and it takes a little longer, I think that's a real strength of our journal because we've found many, many times uh, that, at least I have, that Eric's provided insights that I didn't even think of. Or sometimes we've softened each other's language or firmed it up or whatever needs to be. So I think that, that our writers are getting a really good good feedback, thorough feedback, and a good mentorship, mentoring experience, which um, not every journal provides. Uh, Bernadette, you've already alluded to this to, to some extent, but briefly, can you describe the process for authors when they submit a manuscript to be considered for publication to the journal? Sure, sure. Um, as, as Eric mentioned before, uh, we are very eager to work with new scholars. And a lot of times, especially because our journal is so new, they'll email us or contact us in some way, what we would call a query, which means, you know, they're not committed to submitting something yet, but they want to learn more about us and what we're expecting and that kind of thing. Um, so a lot of submissions start that way. Um, or they're referred to us by somebody else or whatever. From there, Eric and I, you know, confer about it and decide whether or not to send it on to reviewers. And we always have at least two peer review peer reviewers besides Eric and us and me. So you're getting four people looking at your article at least. Um, and if there's substantial conflict between the two reviewers, we've sometimes gotten a third one. So when we get all that feedback, uh, Eric and I reconcile all that and, and communicate with the author about what the next steps are. For those of you in the audience who have never published anything scholarly, um, one thing to understand and, and expect is that no, virtually no article gets accepted without revisions. That's not only true of our publication, but just about any high quality peer reviewed publication. And so, um, depending on how much revision is needed, you know, then we go from there. Um, so, in terms of what the process is like for authors, uh, that might be something to ask them. But, uh, you know, I, I think the, the intent, I, one thing I'd like to make clear, um, the intent is not to, to, to belittle authors or to make them feel like, you know, they're not of good quality. We always look towards improving the quality of what they have. And if their public, if, if their manuscript isn't appropriate for us, um, we do have ways to connect them with other venues. For example, the Library History Roundtable has a blog, LHRT News, and so for shorter, less thoroughly researched pieces, that might be the place to start, especially for someone who hasn't written um, a lot. We also have a book review section in our journal. Brett Spencer, who uh, also works at Penn State, he manages that. So if, if, if there are people in the audience there that are, are intimidated by writing something of a scholarly nature, there's still ways you can get involved in library history. Like I said, either through writing for the blog or 
writing a book review. Eric, could you please uh, talk a little bit more about how you could inspire other librarians to create their own journal publications or start a new journal? And do you have anything in particular that you'd recommend to other librarians? Well, sure. Well, um, I'm not sure if this would be, this counts as inspiring, but I will say that the uh, response from the library history community to the first couple of issues has been tremendously gratifying to me personally. And I think after our first issue, we heard from many of what we'd call the library history luminaries, people and scholars who work, whose work I've admired for years and who helped to inspire me when I became a fledgling library historian. And to have those individuals reach out and applaud our efforts and commend the importance of the journal to the library history field really helped make all of the, uh, the effort worthwhile. And, you know, I don't want to minimize the effort for anyone considering doing this. It really was a, uh, quite a labor to get this launched. But when you see the reader responses and you realize the, uh, the value that you're adding to for your peers and, and other library historians, it does get you through the rest of the months. In terms of advice, I think the, one of the things I found most useful was reaching out to fellow journal editors um, at, the, at the beginning. So there was a community of library and information science journal editors that uh, we were able to connect with at, at the beginning of the process. Um, I would also say if you can, find a co-editor. <laughs> it's really been helpful to have not only the distribution of labor, because as Bernadette mentioned, we often sort of swap roles um, depending on our workloads at any given time. But I found it, it has really helped uh, improve the processes where to have uh, another person taking a look and, and providing feedback and, and saying, well, what, how about if we approach this this way or what do you, how do you think about this uh, avenue um, and maybe we could promote the journal this way, things like that, that I'm, I probably wouldn't have thought of on my own. So just sort of that wisdom of the crowd approach has been beneficial, I think, to the journal to have two heads better than one. If I could add something, I think that it's really important to think about the long-term sustainability of the journal. Um, this, can't be, this can't be just an idea that you think is cool in your own head or you have a couple of people on Facebook who think it's cool. There are so many brand new journals that never get past issue one or two. Right. So I think a major factor in our success was being affiliated with the Library History Roundtable. Um, even though it's just a small group, it's only about, you know, three to four hundred people. Still, that was a group that could be tapped for advice, for submissions, uh, for reviewers and for all that stuff. Um, even though Eric and I are the editors, producing that first issue took dozens of people. It really did. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that um, because it, it's really, it, it is true. It's not something to, to enter into lightly. And it does, to borrow a phrase, it takes a village. <laughs> and, and I would say it took a whole county <laughs> of people. It really did. Um, thinking, I mean, it, behind every, looking at our first issue, we published what, six articles, Eric? That's correct. Each, each one of those had at least two peer reviewers. You know, there was a whole group of people at Penn State Press who 
concern themselves with layout and that kind of thing. Um, so you have all that labor in addition to Eric and, and myself. Not to mention the submissions that weren't accepted, which yeah. were also peer-reviewed. Many. Yep. This is a good example of the co-editors um, collectively improving the response to this particular question. Yeah, right, right. Um, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, you really do need a community of people. And also, LHRT provided financial support for the journal too. If you're working with a traditional um, university press publisher, that from a financial perspective, they cannot enter into this lightly. The fact that LHRT could fund the publication costs for the first three, it was three years, right, Eric? They, they usually predict that it takes at least three years before a journal would become financially viable on its own. Yeah. Um, you're, you're going to use, lose money the first couple of years. Yep. Uh, so I know that some people in the audience might say, well, you know, we can just do it open access online. Why go with a press and why pay that money? I think Eric would agree. Well, I would definitely say <laughs> that working with an academic press takes a lot of burden off the editors in terms of the layout handling subscriptions or access, uh, troubleshooting technology problems, advertising, and things like that. So especially if you work a full-time job and you're not going to get any course releases or anything, um, I think that working with a university press might be a good option. Um, of course, with that, though, you have to think about financing maybe in a different way than you would if you were just using some sort of open access technology-based platform for your publication. So um, those are some really big issues that we thought about before we decided how we were going to publish this. Well, that's all great advice. Finally, Bernadette and Eric, could you tell us more about some of the things in progress for future issues of the journal? We're going to well, have more great stuff. <laughs> yep. um, so the third, the, our third issue is um, due at the press yesterday. So we've just about wrapped up our, our third issue, and that will appear um, in the spring of 2018. So we're excited about that. As far as uh, other uh, things in progress, really the only, uh, besides just doing more quality work and, and more of the best of library history, um, you know, one of my goals is to solicit and be able to to shepherd to to um, publications some more contributions that look at library experiences outside of the United States. And Bernadette's mentioned that we've gotten submissions in those areas, but they haven't come to fruition just yet. But we're hoping to to be able to successfully shepherd some of those through. Mm-hmm. Another thing, um, now that we've reached our one year anniversary, now is a good time to take a look back at how things went in the first two issues and and look at our documentation and our procedures to see whether authors and editors, uh, reviewers, sorry, are getting adequate instructions and, and technical support and things like that. So there's some behind the scenes sort of mm-hmm. assessment that we need to do. To we, hope, we hope to formally solicit input from our authors as far as because we um, we are a new journal, and we want to get as much feedback mm-hmm. as we can and, and provide the best experience for our authors that we can. 
Mm -hmm. Another thing that um, we've talked about back and forth is whether we could ever make this journal open access, maybe keep it with Penn State Press, but find the funding um, to, to do away with subscription costs entirely. But that's a lot of financial stuff that has to be worked out, both on our side and with the press. So that's something uh, that, you know, it's an issue that we know will come up again, Mm. Um, especially given the fact that LHRT is part of the American Library Association and ALA strongly encourages open access. So that's something I see on the horizon. Another thing that I see on the horizon, I don't know if, if Eric would be as interested as I would, but I would like to kind of look at the whole scholarly process from the author's point of view. How do we get people in the pipeline? Because you don't just start writing scholarly articles from nothing. Most authors start out, no matter what their discipline is, doing conference presentations, lighter journal articles, and things like that. And I'd like to see what the journal can do in terms of fostering, sponsoring, supporting conferences, even if they're just online sort of conferences, mm-hmm. um, to, to, so that we can build up this community and make it bigger and make it more diverse, more international, that, so that we can, we'll have a pipeline uh, a, a larger pipeline into our journal. Well, congratulations to both of you on a wonderful resource um, and for getting the third issue out soon. We're looking forward to seeing that. Thank you both again for taking the time to be with us today at PA LaunchPod. The journal is a wonderful, unique resource for anyone interested in library history and fills a great gap in the library literature. For our listeners, we'll put a link to the journal on our blog so that you can check it out. We hope that you're as excited about the new journal Libraries, Culture, History, and Society as we are. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. For more information about this episode and how you could be featured on this podcast, visit palibraries.org slash group slash PA Launchpod. Remember, membership matters.